0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Activism and disinformation in the war between Hamas and Israel. Lockbit claims an attack on CDW. Shadow PC's breach. Boyd Rabisu deploys a lightweight rom-com backdoor against the Brussels conference. Rick Howard describes radical asymmetric distribution. Our guest is Jason Birmingham from Broadridge Financial Solutions with a look at asset management and coin mining as a potential front for espionage or a staging area for sabotage. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Monday, October 16th, 2023. We begin with a quick look at the cyber dimensions of the war between Hamas and Israel. Pro-Hamas hacktivism, mostly at a low grade— and to a significant extent overstated to the point of fiction, continues to be the most prominent cyber feature of the war between Hamas and Israel, Politico reports. Confirmed cyber attacks have, for the most part, been distributed denial of service activity. One organization, Medical Aid for Palestine, says that its website had been disrupted by unspecified cyber attacks that have impeded its delivery of humanitarian aid to Gaza. A great deal of disinformation in the present war has involved overpromising and under-delivery. Last Friday, for example, was supposed to have been a day of global protest in support of Palestinians throughout the Islamic and Arab worlds. This was quickly glossed as a day of global jihad, which didn't materialize. There have also been some attempts to walk back Hamas-inspired content that, on reflection, Hamas thinks might not be polling well things like Hamas fighters holding captured Israeli babies, Hamas fighters spitting on desecrated civilian corpses, and civilians being dragged into captivity. Basim Naim, the Hamas head of international relations, said in an English-language press conference that Hamas fighters were under instruction not to target civilians and were keen to avoid doing so. Other Hamas officials said that their attack, quote, targeted only Israeli military bases and compounds that were suffocating the people of Gaza for more than 17 years, quote. And as for the massacre at the Supernova Music Festival, Hamas officials suggested that their fighters probably mistook the roughly 260 concertgoers they murdered for resting Israeli soldiers. Where are false or dubious claims concentrated? The DFR Lab reports that pro-Israeli accounts, especially in English, have tended to show a preference for X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, despite X's recent difficulties with its hosting of pro-Hamas posts. The Hamas-run accounts have gravitated to Telegram. Much of the amplification of disinformation is achieved through the use of accounts that impersonate trusted sources." Technology services giant CDW is investigating claims of data theft made by the Lockbit ransomware gang, the Record reports. A CDW spokesperson said the company is addressing an isolated IT security matter associated with data on a few servers dedicated solely to the internal support of Sirius Federal, a small U.S. subsidiary of CDWG. CDW added... We are aware that a third party has made data available on the dark web, which it claims to have taken from this environment. As part of the ongoing investigation, we are reviewing this data and will take appropriate action in response, including directly notifying anyone affected as appropriate. The Lockbit gang said it demanded $80 million in exchange for not publishing the stolen data, but was offered only $1.1 million. Cloud-based gaming company Shadow has confirmed a data breach in which attackers were able to obtain customers' full names, email addresses, dates of birth, billing addresses, and credit card expiration dates, TechCrunch reports. Shadow CEO Eric Saleh said in an email, At the end of September, we were the victim of a social engineering attack targeting one of our employees. This highly sophisticated attack began on the Discord platform, with the downloading of malware under cover of a game on the Steam platform proposed by an acquaintance of our employee, himself a victim of the same attack. An individual who has claimed responsibility for the attack is selling the data on an underground forum, alleging that the database contains the information of more than 530,000 shadow customers. Trend Micro describes the recent activities of Void Rabisu, which it describes as an intrusion set associated with both financially motivated ransomware attacks and targeted campaigns on Ukraine and countries supporting Ukraine. In this case, the intrusion was directed against the Women Political Leaders Summit that convened in Brussels between June 7th and 8th of this year. The summit's goal was to increase the participation of women in politics, and while that may not have been something the threat actors necessarily approved of, it seems likelier that the conference was simply a target of opportunity, an occasion to prospect and compromise devices and systems belonging to political leaders. The ultimate payload Void Su delivered was a new version of the Romcom backdoor that they've dubbed Romcom 4.0, also known as Peapod. Void Su is an interesting mixed case of an organization that has been financially motivated, that trades in the criminal-to-criminal market, but which engages in espionage and, once it's on its target, acts like an advanced persistent threat. Some of its earlier, more clearly financially motivated actions have been thought to be associated with a Cuba ransomware affiliate, bleeping computer notes, but the activity now seems focused on zero-day exploitation for the purposes of espionage. There's no attribution of the activity so far, Trend Micro writes While we have no evidence that Void Rabisu is nation state sponsored, it's possible that it is one of the financially motivated threat actors from the criminal underground that got pulled into cyber espionage activities due to the extraordinary geopolitical circumstances caused by the war in Ukraine. And in general, Void Rabisu has consistently acted against Ukrainian interests. And finally, Coin mining is famously hungry for both electrical power and computational power. It's now far advanced from the days when it might have been possible for some regular Joe to make some money on their laptop. Coin mining operations are now effectively large, powerful, single-purpose data centers. Some of the mines are owned by the Chinese government or Chinese corporations, and the U.S. has begun taking note. The New York Times reports, in at least 12 states, including Arkansas, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Wyoming, the Times identified Chinese-owned or operated Bitcoin mines that together use as much energy as 1.5 million homes. At full capacity, the Cayenne-Wyoming mine alone would require enough electricity to power 55,000 houses. The Wyoming mine is particularly interesting. Interesting. It's situated between a big Microsoft data center that supports the U.S. Department of Defense and F.E. Warren Air Force Base, a command center for U.S. intercontinental ballistic missiles. Now, physical proximity isn't any more closely connected with cyber access than correlation is with causation, but the coin mine's neighbors are at least suggestive. Microsoft warned the U.S. Treasury Department's Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States last year of the threat such installations could pose. The mines are positioned to be able to collect intelligence on sensitive activity and their consumption of electrical power is so high that they can stress the power grid or, by cycling that consumption, upset the balance on which a reliable grid depends. The prospect of destabilizing the grid is probably the more serious of the risks. Coin mines are largely unregulated, and U.S. agencies are considering the possibility of prescribing how rapidly they can start and stop their active mining operations. Coming up after the break, Rick Howard describes radical asymmetric distribution. Our guest is Jason Birmingham from Broadridge Financial Solutions with a look at asset management. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together, Jason Birmingham is Chief Technology Officer at Broadridge Financial Solutions. I spoke with him about the challenges facing financial institutions, specifically when it comes to asset management.
1: Asset management is a hot sector in general. And from a cybersecurity perspective, uh, it's a very, very attractive space if you're looking uh, to cause some mischief. Um, Obviously, A lot of customer financial data is in play in the asset management space. Uh, The intellectual property um, that's in some of these trading strategies, and the algorithmic trading increasingly uh, is very attractive to, um, you know, hackers, both in terms of disrupting the flow of the financial markets, but also looking for ways to actually fund some other activities going forward. Um, You know, obviously, um, I think there's a little bit of a perception that maybe security isn't Uh, as big of a focus in this space as it would be in some of the more, uh, you know, traditional banking sectors or capital market sectors, where there's, you know, just good programs that people are running on cyber as, you know, part of, you know, the bank, for example. Um, You know, so I think people look at the sector as ripe for, you know, a potential uh, intrusion. Um, And so, you know, I think if you're an asset manager and you haven't been paying attention to this so far, I think now is the time to really start paying attention to
0: it. What are your recommendations then in terms of best practices? The number one path of intrusion still, even today, you
1: know, 10 or 15 years into discussions about cyber is still people. Phishing attacks remain at the top of the list in terms of how intruders and, and hackers get into firms to begin with. And I think, you know, the notion that firms have to spend a ton of money on having good cyber practices is, is a bit of a misnomer. Obviously, you need to have good tools around multi-factor Endpoint detection, uh, secure backups. I mean, there's certainly a a technical aspect of all this, but, you know, getting the basics right around making sure you have good employee training programs related to phishing, you know, making sure that your employees know what to do if they suspect that there might be a breach, having proper, you know, controls and, and policies and practices and procedures that get drilled regularly, you know, something that doesn't cost anything. But, you know, oftentimes it's something that will either prevent an issue from happening altogether uh, or certainly will limit the blast radius if something does start to happen. So, you know, I think just getting clarity on what you can do, you know, from the the training and the, the incident response perspective, that's essentially free. And then I think, you know, going from there and just some good foundational technology practices, I mentioned multi-factor you know, I think having endpoint detection, or you know, moving into the cloud, for example, where you get a lot of these controls somewhat natively from your cloud providers, or at least there's a base level of protection versus what you would have if you were still trying to run your own infrastructure on-prem. Uh, you know, certainly is a good um, perspective there. But you know, I think as you get into the discussion further, certainly role-based access, you know, and understanding what people can do and decision rights and access rights. Is very very critical. You know, oftentimes, um, you know, when we're helping customers talk through some of this stuff, as part of what we do, just understanding who can do what and who has access to what, and even what your inventory of assets is, becomes a series of projects for a lot a lot of firms. And so, I think again, like just the good discipline around having that inventory, knowing who can, um, you know, access things and, and change things, very very important
0: with the folks that you all work with there do you find that as you're engaging are, are there common errors that people make when it comes to asset management or or common misunderstandings that folks have
1: you know the asset management space and you look at the firms that make up the space obviously you have very very large you know firms that are very sophisticated and you know with them i think there's a very strong understanding of you know the right practices and the right technologies and how you you know, manage cyber appropriately but the other end of that spectrum are very small shops, you know, boutique firms that spin up around a strategy, or you know, smaller shops that are trading, or maybe family offices. You know, people that you know don't have the the resources and the wherewithal to really understand the full breadth of the of the discussion. And I think the mistake that gets made is is realizing that too late. You know, if you're in this space, if you have customers' money, you have their data. You know, I think you have to view yourself as a target. You know, the asset management space is kind of at the junction of a lot of things in financial services. You have retail data, and you know, access to the retail markets with the consumers. You're obviously tapped into the broader financial services ecosystem through payments and, and you know the, the trading infrastructure that's out there. And so, you know, a hacker or somebody looks at you as a as kind of an interstate, right, or at least a junction on how to get into to a place they can exploit. One asset manager; they then have access potentially to other things, and so I think you know understanding that that's how you're viewed in the land of the bad bad guys, I think is is important, and that's usually where people fall down. Once people understand the magnitude of that, you know, I think the best practices and, and the playbooks are pretty standard at this point and, and quite straightforward to understand, but most people miss the, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm smaller than most, and nobody's paying attention to me. I think in some ways that makes you a more attractive uh, target, but you don't have to spend a fortune. You don't have to have a big bank or a big, you know, hedge fund sort of budget to be able to protect yourself. I think is the good news. I think it does take a bit of, you know, management discipline and you know the ability to really focus the resources you do have, which might be people's time rather than going out and, and spending money, focusing people's time and their attention, um, and maybe aligning their incentives to getting the basics right.
0: That's Jason Birmingham, Chief Technology Officer at Broadridge Financial Solutions. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's Chief Security Officer and also our Chief Analyst. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Dave. So I saw the topic of today's discussion, and I have to say it captivated my imagination. (laughs) 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 And it is radical asymmetric
2: distribution,
0: which I have to say
2: flows trippingly off the tongue. Yes. We, sh- we should uh, be marketeers, I think, because that's going to be great.
0: <laughs> How did this come to your attention, Rick, and and uh, bring me up to speed? Why are we talking about this today?
2: Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a bunch of us went down to the MYS conference here in D.C. This is uh, Google slash Mandiant's big security conference every year. Mm. And we talked to a bunch of really smart people. Um, but the end conference keynote was done by one of my I'm a fan favorite of Malcolm Gladwell, right? And, ah, yeah. and you know, for those who don't know, Gladwell—he wrote a bunch of books that, that I love: The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, Talking to Strangers, and The Bomber Mafia. And he has this excellent podcast called Revisionist History that I listen to almost every week. It's fantastic. So I was going to be there to hear the hear what Malcolm Gladwell was going to say about cybersecurity because he's not a cyber guy. I'm just you know just like to point that out. Yeah. So he comes on stage, and he goes, he learned a long time ago that he should never come into an auditorium full of experts in the field and tell them how to do their job, right? So he said that's a bad thing to do. (laughs) Good life advice there, I think. Yeah, (laughs) He said, though, but he was doing some research, and he noticed this pattern of things called radical asymmetric distribution. That he thinks might apply to cybersecurity, and he was looking for feedback on whether or not it was. So let me explain what it is. Yeah, he, he used a case study of the COVID uh, infectious rates. You know, back in when we when it was everybody was locking down, uh, we all assumed, meaning all the scientists in the world assumed that if Dave was infected and Rick was infected, that we had the equal chance of distributing that infection to somebody else. You know, it was an equal probability. Yeah, And a bunch of MIT students were doing a study in the early days of the lockdown. This is March 2020. And they were tracking infectious vectors coming into Boston. And there were 300 people that came into the city in that time frame that were infected with COVID. And what they discovered was all those things died down. You know, they got sick, but nobody got hurt. Nobody died. Nobody went to the hospital out of those 300, except for one. One guy went to a business meeting infected a bunch of people and killed 300 people because of that infection, right? Wow. And and the reason was, according to the paper, was that the amount of uh, water modules coming out of that guy's uh, breath was exponential compared to what normal people had, okay? So he was more likely to infect somebody than anybody else in the world. And this was just a random uh, habit of the way that this person talked. Yeah, it's just his body makeup. You know, he has yeah. the ability to do this. He's a super spreader. You know, that's right. kind of what he is, right? And so Gladwell says that, you know, if you knew that going in, that your strategies for reducing the pandemic, reducing infection rates, might be different if you realized it, that the distribution scheme of the infection was asymmetric as opposed to evenly distributed. Hmm. Right. So if you're if it's evenly distributed, we're going to do all the things that we did, you know, mask and distancing and vaccines and, you know, shut down schools and blah, blah, blah. We would do all those things, let's say. But if you knew it was asymmetrically distributed, we would just spend some time trying to find those people and lock those people away. Right. And not (laughs) worry about everybody else. Right. So that's a really complex story. Let me tell you a second one. The one he his big pet peeve was. You know, we all have to go into the, the mechanics every year and get our catalytic converters inspected. Okay, everybody does it. We pay fifty bucks a year, and we get it checked. and And he says, you know, how many times do the mechanics find something wrong with your catalytic converter? Never. You know, it never happens, right? It only right, happens right. if your car is old or there's some major, major mechanical problem, right? He goes, but we assume that the fix is evenly distributed. That means everybody has to go through this inspection. Mm. When we've had the technology for 20 years that you could have a collector on the side of the street that would just watch cars go by and they could identify it pretty quickly that it was, you know, a malfunctioning catalytic converter. Because mm. we assumed the problem was that it was evenly distributed. Sure. So, okay. So, what? and he says, he thinks that maybe cybersecurity is an asymmetrically distributed problem also. And it just dawned on me that he might be right, right? Because I've been saying for, I don't know, a couple of years now, if you just do the stats on publicly announced breaches, I think the FBI back in 2021, you know, they said that there were 5,000 reported breaches to their agency in that year. All right, so 5,000 reported breaches. Okay, let's assume that, I don't know, let's go big. Let's say there was 100,000 total because 75,000 said we're not going to tell anybody. Right. So let's say 100,000. There's like 6 million organizations in the United States, all right. So if you do 100,000 divided by 6 million, that's a really small number, hmm. really small number, right? And But the industry for 30 years have been spending money like the problem was evenly distributed, meaning that any organization of that 6 million would have the equal chance to get hit by a bad guy in the cyberspace than any others. When it turns out, that's probably not true. Bad guys are going to go after financials, going to go after healthcare sectors, they're going to go after Fortune 500s, right? But all the other companies are, you know, their chances of getting hit are pretty small, right? And so the strategies that you use to defend yourself when you realize it's an asymmetrically distributed problem are completely different than if it's evenly distributed to everybody. If it's evenly distributed, you're going to buy intrusion detection, firewalls, you're going to build socks, you're going to have 24 by 7 coverage, because at any moment, this bad thing is going to happen. But if it's asymmetrically distributed, this is a black swan event. You know, it's likely not going to happen, but if it does, it's catastrophic. All right, so the strategy you might use is something completely different, be like a resilience strategy. You're going to try to put resources in to survive it and not worry so much about preventing it. I just thought hmm. it was a fantastic idea. That was a long explanation. Did I put you to sleep while I was doing no, no, that? No, no,
0: it's interesting. I mean, a couple of things come to mind. It makes me wonder, you know, to what degree is this kind of like, you know, your life insurance policy is going to cost a different amount than mine if you're a, uh, if your hobby is skydiving. Yeah, right? that's right. Uh, I mean, does it align with that sort of
2: type of thinking? That's right, because uh, the, yeah, I think because it's the that is uh, skydiving is an asymmetric problem. Not everybody has that, right? Right. You know, right. I shouldn't have to put a lot of money on everybody because you know, just because grandma likes to jump out of airplanes when nobody else does, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, as you've been thinking about this, I mean,
0: how how do you suppose folks can take this notion and, and apply it to their own strategies?
2: Well, you know, I've been thinking about you know how do you calculate. Uh, cyber risk for a number of years now, and I think I finally figured it out, right? And what has come to my conclusion is that for, you know, really small companies to maybe medium-sized companies, the best strategy for your organization is probably resilience and not prevention in the form of zero trust or intrusion kill chain prevention, right? Because, like I said, it's likely not to happen. But if you put a small amount of resources into things like backups and encryption And, you know, just a couple of little things like that, your chances of survival of a ransomware attack, say next year, will be, you know, really high compared to the other things you might invest in. So uh, that kind of aligns directly with what I've been thinking for the last, I don't know, two or three years.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, interesting stuff for sure. Thanks for sharing it with us. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the Cyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.